Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us here today. Hi, my name is Ben Scheim. I'm executive director of Betaworks Studios. For those of you who don't know me, thanks for joining us on today, um, which is one of our founder stories days as part of our Betaworks Studios regular weekly programming. Um, in case this is your first time here, um, we have um, Betaworks Studios formerly was a club in the Meatpacking District. We reopened in the spring, uh, or sorry, in the September, um, but uh, it's not, the, not exactly the same that it was in the past, but we used to host events every day of the week. Um, and we relaunched as a virtual membership community, which is exciting because it's been a chance for us to bring in people from all over the place. Um, I'm sure that not all of you are dialing in just from New York, but from various locations around the world. Um, and we're here to help kind of help entrepreneurs get things done. Um, and we do that through our event programming, which is telling stories about how entrepreneurs made things. Um, opening up questions that they've got. Um, we do workshops um, and tons of other areas that are really just trying to explore new areas of technology, which Betaworks, our VC has been investing in for the last 10 years um, and areas of entrepreneurship to help you guys um, get ahead. So we're excited today to have really honestly, one of the absolute titans of modern technology, Steve Case, um, who among many things, um, is best known as the former CEO and chairman of America Online, which for many people, myself included, was the very first foray um, that we made onto the internet, unless you were, you know, dabbling in bulletin board services. AOL was certainly your first experience in the visual internet. Um, and excited to have him here today. Steve is, uh, since AOL, um, has been uh, investing in early stage and growth startups through his DC-based venture firm, uh, Revolution LLC and uh, authored the book, The Third Wave, An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future, a few years ago. Um, and Steve's going to be interviewed today by Aaron Canary, who is a Betaworks Studios member um, and uh, an entrepreneur himself. Um, and we've set this up as an AMA, so we've gotten tons and tons of questions, I think possibly more than we've ever gotten for an AMA that we've done. Um, we've done them in the past with Perry Chen of Kickstarter and Jonah Preddy of BuzzFeed and um, uh, Elizabeth Cutler of SoulCycle, many other luminaries, um, and excited to answer your questions. So Aaron is going to be starting things off by interviewing Steve, kind of getting into his background a bit, and then he'll open up to your questions. Um, he's got a ton that were sent through already, but if you've got your more questions, add them into the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom window, um, and Aaron will get to them if we got time. So, but, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Aaron and Steve. Steve, thanks so much for being with us today. Aaron, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. and. Uh, Let's, let's kick it off. Thanks, Ben. And uh, just to echo Ben's thanks, uh, thank you, Steve, for, for joining the community today. Um, as Ben mentioned, we have a ton of questions and a lot of ground to cover in the next hour or so. So I think we'll jump right in, but start at the very beginning of your career. Um, so you started out at Procter & Gamble. You were an assistant brand manager. Um, I heard about a product you're working on on, on uh, hair conditioner. Is that right? Is that the... Yep. Towel that, you bet. Tell that you bet. Uh, it, was, it was a crazy thing. Actually, I graduated from college in 1980. I knew at the time I wanted to get into the internet, but back then, there really, you know, still not really a consumer internet. There were companies to go to work for, so that's why I went to work for Procter and Gamble in, in Cincinnati. But the, the product that they I, I put me on ended up failing. It was a, essentially a hair conditioner and a dry towelette, sort of like the, a bound that you throw in a dryer. The idea was you put this dry towelette on your hair when it's wet, and you just put conditioner where you need it. Uh, which they thought was a good idea. Consumers thought was a bad idea. So that was an early lesson that you get, you can get people to try something, but you can't force them to buy it. And so we got a lot of trial, but we didn't get a lot of repeat. And then you went on to Pizza Hut for a bit? I did. I, I shipped that. I was B&G about two years. And then I, I went to Pizza Hut, which at the time was owned by PepsiCo. Uh, and I was the director of new pizza development, which still to this day is probably the best title I ever had. And we, is it, am I right in um, understanding you were overseeing some of the introduction of delivery at the time? And some yeah, of they the... were just testing the start early days of delivery and, and uh, some other products, Calzone, some other things. So uh, I was only there about a year, but the insight there, which has led to some of the, thing I've, some of the things I've done around um, entrepreneurship, including around the country, is that Pizza Hub happened at the time to be headquartered in Wichita, Kansas. And we had all these you know, R&D people and test kitchens and so forth. Uh, but the sense was, I think at the time there was 5,000 Pizza Huts and something like 50,000 independent pizzerias. And why, rather than just try to figure out stuff here in Wichita, why don't we hit the road and see what's happening everywhere? And maybe some of those ideas can then be kind of put through the Pizza Hut system. Great. 
And then um, around sort of the early 80s, you started working on um, some of the, what was sort of the precursor to AOL and to, the, to your work there. You want to explain that a bit? Yeah, I moved to uh, uh, the DC area in 1983, joined a, a startup, uh, but it promptly failed a few months after I joined. It, you know, it was in, in free fall and the venture capitalists kind of pulled back. And it was, it, the reason it was a focus at the time on Atari game machines, which were, were hot for a while, then got really cold. So this product, which essentially was called GameLine, was sort of a video game downloading service, a little bit almost like a Netflix for video games, whenever that was, almost 40 years ago. Um, it actually was an interesting product idea, but the timing ended up being bad. So that that yeah that was a struggle. But thankfully, two of the people I met there, and I started America Online AOL in uh, 1985, so 35 years ago this summer. And at the time, believe it or not, only three percent of people were online, and those three percent were online an average of one hour a week. And so the fact that we now are living in Zoom land and are, are online constantly, uh, it's, it's amazing what's happened in the last uh, you know, 35 years from an idea that most people back then you know, thought the internet would just be a niche hobbyist thing. Most didn't think it'd ever be mainstream uh, to now kind of, you know, obviously business and, and our lives are conducted uh, increasingly online in the last year, almost entirely online. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a world where you only spend an hour uh, online every, every week. Um, and, and so you were originally, is it fair to say it was somewhat of a white labeling internet access with other companies or how, how would you? Yeah, it, it was, uh, when we started, uh, partly cause it was, you know, came out of this failed startup. Uh, it was hard to raise capital. We raised $1 million to, you know, to get going, uh, at the time there was some, uh, you know, notable online services, CompuServe, the source, a few of them out there. Uh, and some big players entering, uh, IBM and Sears had announced a joint venture called Prodigy and they had committed $1 billion to launch Prodigy. So they had like $1 billion, we had like $1 million. So, well, probably they're gonna win if it's, if it's a marketing head-to-head -head battle. So we did two things that ended up uh, being important. One was we decided to partner with other organizations, the, the white label strategy. And our first was with Commodore. They had a Commodore 64 computer, it was the number one home computer at the time. We created a service called Q-Link and then we worked with uh, Radio Shack, which was a big PC manufacturer at the time. Uh, created a service called PC Link, and then we worked with uh, IBM and created a service called Promenade, and then we worked with Apple to create a service called Apple Link Personal Editions. That's sort of what we were doing for the first four or five years, uh, and and that really got us going because we essentially were leveraging other people's brands and distribution channels to you know to get going. The only reason it became called America Online was App Apple actually decided kind of a year into the partnership. Uh, and they, I think, had never licensed the Apple brand name to a, another company before, and they decided that was a mistake. They wished they hadn't. And we had a bunch of fights over things. We wanted to give away software for free because we figured we'll make money on you know the subscriptions. They like selling software only in Apple authorized stores, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of tension. Ultimately, they said this isn't working for us. We need to get out of this deal, and they we cut a deal to you know kind of for us to go away quietly. Uh, but then had to pick a new name. And so uh, we had a little internal contest. We couldn't afford a branding agency uh, and America Online kind of won. So we renamed Apple Inc. America Online and it was uh, from there kind of off to the races. The other insight that we focused on early on uh, was we believed the killer app of the internet was people, was community. And so we launched things like people connections with chat rooms and launched instant messaging and then created buddy lists and a lot of things that now people take for granted with, with uh, texting and other kinds of things. And that was a, a, also a strategy. At the time, CompuServe focused on information. Prodigy was focusing on commerce. We said, we're gonna focus on, on, uh, on, on community. So those were two of the things coming out of the gates that really helped, uh, helped us get going and ultimately kind of put us on the map. And there was a moment uh, where Microsoft looked at potentially buying, you, buying AOL and, and then they were talking about how they were gonna go more into internet. And you've talked about how that sort of motivated your team to work even harder on this mission. Can you Talk about how you channel that potential competition into into uh, to activity on your team. Yeah, we always believed that the market was eventually going to accelerate and obviously eventually be a huge market. Therefore, and we also always believed that some big players, including Microsoft, were were going to be big players. Uh, so the mantra was, it's never going to be easier or cheaper to gain market share. So it's sort of a version of, I guess, of blitzscaling, uh, where we really slammed down the accelerator and tried to you know, get as many customers as we can, establish as many partnerships as we can, because we just felt that you know, the window was, was going to close and, and our ability to really emerge as a player 
was was going to be more difficult in the future than it was right right then. So that was a key thing. We did have um, a couple of, of you know kind of experience where we almost sold the company. I remember um, I can't remember which year it was. Probably. Hmm. 1990 maybe CompuServe, which it was owned by H&R Block, which was a competitor, offered to buy us for 65 million dollars, and actually most of the venture capitalists wanted to sell. They thought, well, that's pretty good. We put a few million in. 65 sounds pretty good, uh, and uh, ended up convincing them not to. Uh, and then a few, a couple of years later, after we'd gone public, we were actually the first internet company to go public. It was 1992, and we raised a whopping 10 million dollars in our IPO, and the value of the company that day was 70 million dollars. And, and how well, many users did you have at the time? I, 184,000. I remember the number. We, we were we were still relatively. We've been at it for like seven seven eight years at the time, but it was still relatively niche. A couple of years later, it started picking up. Microsoft started getting interested, so we did have some conversations with, with uh, Bill Gates and others. And uh, they did make an offer to acquire the company, which we did turn down. Again, it was a close vote. Most of the, you know, kind of like prevailed by one vote of the board because it was going to be about a $400 million acquisition. Uh, and thankfully, we turned that down because by the year 2000, uh, the company was worth uh, nearly $200 billion. So, you know, good thing we didn't sell the the CompuServe at 70 million in uh, 1990 and didn't sell it to Microsoft in I think it was 93 or 94 for 400 million because you know, we would have left a lot of money on the table. Yeah, and you, you sort of casually say you started picking up by, but, but by the end of the decade, half of America was online via AOL. Right. That, yeah. what, what is it like? You always often hear the stories of the entrepreneur who said no to, to selling their company and then you know years later it's worth you know an infinite amount more. Um, and has grown quite a bit. What's it like right after you leave those meetings, though, where like you know you're dealing with a sort of stress of, of of running the company and building the company, and you say no to something that you know could have been a, a significant um, uh, um, you know win for you? No, it, it's it's hard because it's a it would be a significant and locked in kind of guaranteed win, and it would have been great for all the employees and great for the investors and and, and so forth. Uh, and so, you know, walking away from that, when you know you're heading into a much more challenging, much more competitive marketplace, and there is some risk that you know, instead of continuing to rise, you could fall. Um, you know, it, it's 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 challenging, no question about it. So you you have to really believe in your idea, believe in your team, believe there's obviously more more of, of a more you know kind of legs of the race to run. Uh, but also recognize that by turning that down, uh, you have to kind of even further step up your game to prove that it was the right decision to, again, all these different uh, constituencies. Uh, and you also had to recognize, which goes back to what I said earlier about it's never going to be easier, cheaper to gain market share. That we, you know, we better we better get moving here uh, because it's, you know the market is going to you know get much more uh, more competitive. So uh, it was it was nice that we had offers, nice that people saw the value in what we were building. But by turning down those offers, we really had to kind of, as a team, redouble our commitment to, you know, to being successful and, and proving that that was, uh, was the right uh, decision. Great. There's a question from Robert Anthony. It says, um, back when you were at AOL, did you have any inkling that online services would evolve into the political force they are today? Um, and, and another question that's somewhat related from Dave Renz. AOL was a walled off garden on the internet in many ways that Facebook is today. Uh, AOL was the internet for many people. Um, what concerns about disinformation were you considering back then, which might be relevant today? Well, on the first, yes, I did. I remember even, you know, I don't know, probably 25 years ago, giving a speech to the National Press Club about how as the internet was coming of age and becoming more mainstream, eventually, you know, the, the, there would be a presidential election that was basically not fought on the ground or not fought on television, but fought on the internet. It frankly, it took longer, you know, I would have expected that that happen. I was really, you know, some some of uh, Obama did obviously some of what uh, Trump did uh, were more internet centric, but it took a little longer for that to to, to happen. Uh, in terms of the disinformation, a little bit different because back then, uh, even though we had about half the market, uh, fewer people were were online, uh, and uh, they obviously we uh, collectively were spending less time online. And the information aspect, the news dissemination was part of that, but not the major part of that. Uh, and so we didn't you know, have the same level of, 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 of difficulty. We had some obviously, but the same level of difficulty that Facebook and others you know, kind of have now in terms of managing 
uh, what is a torrent of information, including a lot of disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to you know call it. Uh, it's it's clearly a much more difficult uh, situation. We also didn't have at the time, going back twenty plus years, the algorithms that Facebook and others used to 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 essentially elevate you know, content. We were uh, posting content from the New York Times and Time Magazine and a bunch of people, and they were deciding, you know, obviously, what to write about and what the headlines should be. And, and we were more of a distributor there. And we were allowing people to post uh, ideas on, on message boards and other kinds of things, but they were kind of organized by category. We were not you know, deciding what information should be get put in front of people. People were deciding where to place it and deciding if they wanted to go there. So it was, it was a different environment then than obviously it is now. Great, cool. I want to talk a little bit about your book uh, that you published in 2017, uh, The Third Wave. Um, and you, you, the subtitle is An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. But in the book, you both you gave a bit of a history lesson as well over the, uh, the first and second wave and then and then and now the third wave that we're in. So wondering if you could walk through that a little bit for the, for folks. Well, I first should say that it was I, as I did in the book, I was inspired by a book when I was in college uh, in 1979, 1980, when I was graduating. Uh, called The Third Wave by a futurist, Alvin Toffler. And some may know Alvin Toffler also wrote Future Shock and some other books. And what he was laying out, again, now this is 40 years ago, uh, was a, uh, a vision of, he said the first wave was the agricultural revolution. That was followed by the second wave, which was essentially the industrial revolution, uh, moving people from farms to factories. And he was predicting the third wave would be the digital revolution, the, elect you know, the electronic frontier. Uh, uh, and I was completely captivated by that because, again, what we now take for granted 40 years ago was was what didn't exist. Uh, so I knew I wanted to, you know, get into that. It just took me a while, as I described, PNG and you know, Pizza Hut and so forth, to finally get into it. So when I decided to write a book, and I resisted for a bunch of years writing a book because I didn't really, when AOL was really hot and growing, it was like, why don't you write a book about like how that happened, lessons learned? I said, nah, I don't really feel like doing that when we merged with Time Warner, and that obviously didn't work out. Why don't you write a book about why you, you know what happened, what lessons learned, culture clash, etc. Said, no, I don't really want to do that either because I'm always more interested in what's happening next. And I'm all not that interested, maybe to a fault, in looking in the rearview mirror and, and talking about what happened in, in the past. What changed, which led me to write the book, is I concluded that some of the things that happened in the early days of the internet were going to happen again. And I could write a book about the future, including some stories of the past to help inform the future. And the framing that I used in that book uh, uh, was the first wave of the internet getting everybody online, building the on-ramps, the servers, the modems, all the stuff that needed to, to happen to, you know, you know, get the world online. And that was obviously AOL as part of that, but there are many other companies. That was sort of the 80s and 90s for the most part, about 20 years. The last, you know, couple decades have been the second wave, which is building apps, software services on top of the internet, because all the infrastructure is in place. You didn't need to do that. So you're focused on whether it be Facebook or Google or whomever, you know, you're essentially building apps, usually smartphone apps usually that would spread virally, then you'd figure out some way to monetize them. That was sort of a lot of the, uh, the second wave of, of the internet. And I believe the third wave would be kind of when the internet met the real world and it really started impacting in more significant ways, things like healthcare and food and agriculture, you know, smart cities, sectors like that. But I believed as I look back at that first wave and what the key dynamics, almost the playbook for entrepreneurs was, and then I looked at the second wave, it was quite different. And I thought the third wave would look more like the, you know, the, the first wave. And just you know, briefly, you know, a couple of examples of that. In, that. in that first wave of the internet, we couldn't do it alone. We had to partner with lots of companies. We had 300 partners at AOL to you know, get going. Communications companies, media companies, you know, software companies, PC companies, you, know, you, you name it. It was a tapestry of alliances that made that possible. Facebook didn't need partnerships. They really launched something that caught, caught a cord and obviously you know, spread, spread rapidly and, and built a significant business. In the third way, when you're dealing with take healthcare, for example, the software is important, but it's kind of the table stakes. It is the partnerships you build around it with nurses and doctors and how do you get hospitals to integrate it and health plans to pay for it and so forth uh, is where, where a lot of value would be. So I think the first wave that, that partnership act aspect was important, not so important in the second wave, gonna be super important again in the, in the third wave. Another one was policy. And again, believe it or not, when we started AOL in 1985, it was illegal against the law for consumers or businesses to be on the internet. Because the internet had been funded by the government, DARPA, and was at that time restricted by law 
to educational institutions and government agencies. So if you were you know, on a university campus, you could be on the internet. If you worked at whatever, the IRS or the CIA, you can be on the internet. But if you're a consumer at home or you know, somebody at a you know, business at an office, you couldn't actually get on the internet. So we had to create these parallel universes uh, for, for a while. So we had to commercialize access to the internet. There are a lot of policy changes happened. They had to break up the phone company to create competition, a lot of issues there. There's a whole host of things that were critical kind of policy regulatory issues to deal with in the, in the first way without which the internet never would have had a chance to take off. And again, policy wasn't a big deal in the, in the second wave, at least the early part of the second wave. Obviously Facebook has policy issues now, but uh, you, know, they, you didn't have to you know, jump through policy regulatory hoops to launch in the, in the second wave. You just had to have a cool app that spread quickly. The third wave, again, you know, talk, you've got to talk about healthcare, but there are a lot of other sectors too. The policy aspects are super important. There's a reason why there's rules about making sure drugs are safe and medical devices work and, 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 and so forth. So you have to understand that, that uh, policy. And the last one, I, I call these the three Ps, by the way, partnership policy, and the third is perseverance. That it, you know, it was a slog for us. You know, we started in 85. I mentioned we went public in 92, a couple hundred thousand subscribers. It really took us a decade before we finally got traction and then things started uh, accelerating. Uh, Facebook wasn't a mind success. It was not a decade. It was, it was like, you know, a year. Uh, I think in the third wave, you know, the perseverance is going to matter again. And uh, I think it's going to be, there are going to be more situations that are 10 years before you really break through as opposed to kind of the overnight sensation, some of which happened in the in second wave. So that to me was, you know, the long answer to a short question, but the reason I wrote the book is I believe the third wave will be less like the second wave, more like the first wave. And I was trying to share some of the lessons learned from the first wave that I thought would apply to entrepreneurs pursuing uh, building companies in the third wave. On that third P, the perseverance side, and the, the fact that, you know, you, as you mentioned, you know, it's not as much overnight success. A lot of these things will take a lot longer. Do you feel like the fundamentals of startup ecosystem, investment ecosystem are conducive to longer term thinking and, and sort of the, the time that's needed to build companies that will prosper in the third wave? Uh, it's mixed. I think there's, there's some who are used to, you know, if it doesn't happen quickly, uh, whether it be an entrepreneur with that mindset or an investor with that mindset, maybe it's time to either pivot to something else or give up and go do something else. Uh, so there's definitely some of that, you know, mindset that, uh, so not everybody will embrace some of these, uh, you know, tenants of, 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 the, of the third way. But I think a growing number of people do recognize these are interesting battles to fight, interesting mountains to climb. If you can, and big, big you know, market opportunities from a, you know, from a, you know, addressable market standpoint, healthcare is one sixth of our entire economy and doesn't work all that well. So if you can, come up with new ideas that are you know more convenient more affordable lead to better outcomes you can build some pretty significant companies and people are saying okay i get it it'll be harder i get it will take longer i get it you have to deal with some of these policy issues i get it I, you know i have to form partnerships but I, i'm interested enough in in taking that on it's also true in education and, and and other 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 sectors that more and more both entrepreneurs and investors are are beginning to kind of embrace that Great. There's a fourth P you talk about a lot, place, and um, and you mentioned how the domain expertise, uh, when it comes to third wave opportunities, is outside of some of the core places um, that we sometimes think about in the startup um, space, Silicon Valley and New York and some other places. Can you talk a little bit about that, how it relates to what you're doing, Rise of the Rest and Revolution? Well, first of all, just in terms of the data, right now, 75% of venture capital uh, goes to three states. California, New York, and Massachusetts, 75%. So the other 47 states fight over 25%. These are like big states, Virginia, less than 1%, Ohio, less than 1%, Pennsylvania, less than uh, you know, 1%. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of in Michigan, less than 1%, California alone, 50%. So there's a big disconnect. Uh, and as I, again, look back, you know, because I've been doing this for a while, that first wave of the internet actually was fairly regionally dispersed. If you looked at where the companies were, they weren't clustered so much in, in, uh, in Silicon Valley. AOL, for example, was in the Washington, D.C. area. You know, uh, CompuServe, I mentioned, the early pioneering online service was in Columbus, Ohio. Hayes, the modem company, was in Atlanta, Georgia. Sprint, the communications company, was in Kansas City. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Dell obviously started up in Austin. Gateway, another computer company, was in uh, you know, South Dakota. It was actually fairly kind of regionally 
dispersed that 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 first wave, and all those companies played a role in 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 the internet's first wave. And it's really to me only uh, when it shifted from about building the internet to building apps on top of the internet and became so software centric. That's really when Silicon Valley rose to such you know, prominence and, and arguably dominance, and that then led people to move there, and that led more capital to back entrepreneurs there and, and create that kind of increasing returns. Uh, you know, dynamic. I believe in the third wave, it's going to be more dispersed. Silicon Valley will still be in the lead. New York, for those of you who are in New York still right now, I will still be a, a strong, strong ecosystem. Boston will continue to be strong, particularly in biotech and some other, other, other sectors. But I think it will regionalize. And part of that is because a lot of these big industries up for grabs are regionalized. Some of the biggest companies, you know, Fortune 500 companies in healthcare, for example, are in different parts of the country, you know, Minnesota, Tennessee, places like that. And some of the best research universities are, are in, the, in the middle of the country as well. So if you can get people when they're graduating to stay versus leave, indeed create a little bit of a boomerang of people returning. And if you can you know, match that up with venture capital and create more of a culture around risk-taking and innovation in more parts of the country, I think you can see a leveling of the, of the playing field. And I think actually the pandemic has been an accelerant there. You, you know, there's still anecdotals, it's still early, but clearly some people who might have thought they were going to leave New York temporarily, uh, just to shelter, or San Francisco temporarily? You know, most are going to return, uh, but some are going to stay and either continue to work for their existing organization remotely, or maybe decide to join a startup or start their own, you know, company, and that will result in, in, in essentially a, a shift in terms of talent, a migration in terms of, you know, talent that should help these rising cities, which is super important for the country, uh, because startups create most of the jobs in the country. It's actually not small business. They account for a lot of jobs, but don't account for a lot of net new job creation. And it's not also not big business, Fortune 500 companies. Some are rising like Amazon hiring a lot of people. Some are declining like General Electric, you know, cutting a lot of people. As a sector, it doesn't create jobs. So it's the new companies, the startups that create the jobs. So we need to be backing startups everywhere and creating jobs everywhere or the divide we have in our country is gonna get even worse. So let's talk a little bit about how you're doing that. Um, and in particular, the rise of the rest tour and a question related to that. Uh, Alistair Jeffs uh, asked, um, what is the most compelling town in America right now? P.D. Montague has a similar question. What geographically are you seeing, particularly exciting opportunities for the rise of the rest? So if you could give folks a little bit of background on the tour that you did. I know you just did a virtual version as well. Um, um, and what you're looking for when you're going out in the country uh, and, and what you're seeing. Well, a little bit of the backstory. About 10 years ago, I was asked to co-chair something here in Washington called the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And that led to some recommendations, including that uh, the White House create an initiative focused on startups, which they did. And President Obama asked me to chair that was called Startup America. And then I also worked with him on, on some legislation, the, you know, the Jobs Act, which updated the laws around raising capital, including crowdfunding, made it easier for new companies to go public, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was uh, eight, nine, 10 years ago, spending a good bit of time on that. About six years ago, we decided to hit the road and just do a bus tour visiting different cities, understand what's happening there. And each of them, we did a pitch competition. We, we just tried to you know, understand we, uh, what was going on. The first one uh, was Denver, not, not Denver, it was Detroit and uh, Pittsburgh and Nashville and Cincinnati. Just you know, look at some interesting cities, find out what's happening there. We've now done eight of those bus tours, 44 cities. Uh, and also we've launched two Rise Arrest seed funds uh, and they've made investments in 150 companies in 70 cities. So it really has become a, a you know, significant effort to try to identify promising entrepreneurs in, in places where most venture capitalists aren't, aren't, uh, aren't paying attention. And because, you know, as I said, we, you know, we visited 44 cities and invested in 70 cities, it's hard to pick, you know, one or two that are, that are really more, more showing more promise. We think a lot of these are showing promise and, and a lot of these will show real momentum over the next decade if they do focus on, on the startup. So when I get asked that question, I get asked that question a lot. It's almost like asking, who's your favorite child? What's your favorite city? I, I, I duck the question because there's a lot of cities that I think have a lot of uh, potential, a lot of promise. And I should say, because you, you did reference the virtual tour we did. Last week, we did a, a virtual tour we called the Equity Edition Tour, focused on Black founders. The, you know, the talked about the data around uh, place and venture capital, 75% going to just three states. The data around people, is actually even more troubling that that uh, you know there about 13 percent of our population are Black Americans. They get less than one percent of venture capital. Uh, women, they're half our country. They get less than 10 percent of, of venture capital. So this disparity is not just about place; it's also about race and face. And so, how do you kind of level the playing field more broadly? So we put this 
uh, Equity Edition in Turan, put out a call for, for um, startups with, you know, with black founders, 450 companies applied. We cut that to 50, then we cut that to 10, then we cut that to five, and we had a pitch competition with those, those uh, five uh, you know, last week in partnership with 147 regional and coastal venture capital firms who, who joined us on this effort and also agreed to do meetings with the entrepreneurs. So we're just trying to help the, the coastal entrepreneurs find great opportunities in other places and also broaden their aperture so they're not just talking to people they used to work with or went to school with, but are getting exposed to a more diverse mix of, of founders, which we think is critical. To, you know, anything we can do to create a more inclusive innovation economy in terms of place and people uh, we, we try to do. You had said, um, you know, quote, uh, we have to kind of level the playing field so everybody everywhere really does feel like they have a shot at the American dream. Um, but I get a sense too that in addition to the, your mission um, around creating a more equitable future with more shared prosperity that's more um, broader across the country, that there's also a strong economic argument for this as well. Is that right? Huge, huge. No, no obviously to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a passion, but it's also an investment thesis. I mean, most, most investors realize that you, it's hard to make money if you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing. You need something a little bit different, some kind of edge. And we think valuations in places like Silicon Valley are a little high. You know, if those same companies were other parts of the country, they'd be lower, in some cases, much lower. But once the companies are successful, you know, you, you, that, 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 that gap is, is eliminated. You don't never see a company going public saying, oh, we're happy to be located in, in Minneapolis. So there's going to be a discount for the public offering because it's in Minneapolis. But there is a discount, you know, in Minneapolis and all these other rising cities at the, at the seed and, and, and venture stage. The gap starts closing at the growth stage and certainly closes at the public stage. But, it, but it, uh, there is definitely a gap at, the, at that early, early stage. And so we're trying to, you know, kind of capitalize on that and trying to get others to capitalize on that. So we unleash more capital. And, and I should say at Revolution, which an investment firm I started uh, after leaving, uh, doing the merger with Time Warner and stepping down as, as, as CEO. Uh, we now have this Rise of Rest Seed Fund that we talked about. We also have Revolution Ventures and also Revolution Growth. So we're, you know, trying to back entrepreneurs at every you know, stage. And, and some of them, like in New York, we have a number of companies that are that are based in New York. Clear, which is known for airport security, is based there. Talkspace, focused on digital mental health, is based there. Convene, which does, you know, kind of, you know, kind of meetings and, and you know, co-working spaces. Is based there, so there's some companies that are in New York or, or, or Boston, but it, you know we, we're mo mostly focused on backing entrepreneurs in these in these other places. Great. There's a question from Alexandra Backus. She says, um, in addition to making sure there are VCs willing to invest outside of the main tech hubs, what other efforts are needed to make sure there are actually com companies to fund? Uh, so basically, other sort of ecosystem elements that are needed um, in, in other parts of the country. Well, it's a mix of things. I, I would say some of it goes back to culture in these cities. And I'm sure many people listening maybe grew up in some part of the country that it seemed a little more risk averse, seemed a little more cautious, seemed to be more focused on the status quo, or in some cases, even, you know, kind of the rearview mirror, not, you know, really, you know, kind of looking forward, not really supportive of crazy entrepreneurs and crazy, crazy things. So creating more of a cultural dynamic in these communities that's more supportive of, of, of startups, understand the, you know, the risk of startups. And if, if a startup fails, it doesn't mean the entrepreneur is a failure, it just means that idea didn't work. And but hopefully they learn something and can, you know, next time might be more more successful. There's a so there's that cultural aspect. Obviously there's a capital aspect. So we've done a lot of things in terms of trying to support regional venture firms, angel networks in different different uh, cities and try to bridge the coastal investors with some of the opportunities in different parts of the, the country. And the third is, is, and again, we've talked about it, is on the talent side. That, that you know, they. I remember giving a, a talk, uh, TechCrunch Disrupt in, in San Francisco, maybe you know, two or three years ago. You know, probably a thousand people in the audience. And I asked for a show of hands, how many people were born and raised in the San Francisco broader Silicon Valley area? It was like 5%. 95% were from someplace else. It's essentially, everybody in Silicon Valley is from someplace else. They went there because that was sort of the land of opportunity. And they wanted to be part of the, you know, the tech revolution. That was the place to go because that's where other people were. That's where most of the money was. You know, a lot of the big, you know, successful companies were. And obviously, we've seen a similar dynamic to a lesser extent, but still an important extent in, in New York City and, and you know, a couple other other uh, other cities. So we just think that, that that needs to change and we need to figure out ways to back other people. And some of that is getting some of those people to not leave when they're now graduating from Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh or from uh, 
you know, Michigan, the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor or some of these other awesome universities, maybe getting more of them to stay and getting some of the people left to, to return. And then coupling that with what I mentioned around the third wave of the internet, where the domain expertise, like in Pittsburgh, I mentioned Carnegie Mellon, uh, saw some news this week about Uber's plans to exit the, you know, the autonomous vehicle and double down by investing in a company based in Pittsburgh. There's a reason they're based in Pittsburgh, not Silicon Valley, because Carnegie Mellon actually has the best robotics program in the world. Uh, and Pittsburgh is a city used to building stuff. It used to be the you know, steel capital that powered the whole industrial revolution. So having opportunities there, companies grow there that can you know, scale there and, and create you know, lots of jobs there, we think is, is the opportunity. So it just takes a little more time to build the networks to find those companies, take a little more time for them to raise the capital they need, takes a little more time for them to attract the, the, the teams they need, to, for them to attract the partnerships they they need. So it's harder, uh, but we think it's it's a differentiated strategy. We think it's an important thing to focus on in terms of trying to level this playing field. Great. I want to carry on that a little bit on the policy uh, realm. Um, but first, you know, if one of the toughest and hardest jobs a founder has is picking great people to work with and picking great partners, you seem to ace that test with Ron Klain, uh, who was just announced uh, as, the, as the new White House Chief of Staff uh, for the Biden administration. What does it mean for the country uh, to have someone like Ron um, uh, in the administration? Well, Ron's a great guy up until you know a couple months ago, his office was right next to me here and he was a co-founder of Revolution uh, when we started about 15 years ago. Uh, he did leave twice, took, took uh, kind of leaves of absence. He left us for two years to actually be chief of staff for then Vice President Biden in the first two years of the Obama administration, then he returned. And they left us again for five months to be uh, President Obama's Bolazar when that was a, a significant you know, crisis. Uh, and so not surprised that he's, that he's very public service minded that he decided to, you know, it was time to kind of move back into working for the government. I'm also not surprised that, uh, you know, President-elect Biden, uh, who knows him super well, worked for them over several decades, uh, wanted him to, to do that. I think in terms of uh, what it will hopefully do for the country, his experience as, as dealing with COVID, and his, his steady hand, he's pretty unflappable, you know, should enable us to, as we head into this new year, to deal with this uh, pandemic in a, in, a, in a better way than we have over the past year. And, and I think some of the things around the distribution of vaccines and, and, and other dynamics that need to you know, kind of kick in, I think he'll be helpful to the uh, to President Biden uh, you know, in dealing with some of those issues and putting the teams together uh, that can uh, execute against uh, some of those uh, you know, plans. I think he also will bring a, even though that obviously is, 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 is job one, getting, you know, getting the country through the, the pandemic and on the, on the other side, I think he, he certainly is passionate as, as some of the things we've talked about in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship, leveling the playing field, creating a more inclusive innovation economy. And so that mindset, and, and, and uh, you know, even when, President-elect Biden was running for president. Some of his Build Back Better programs do talk about some of these things we've been talking about, rise of the rest and other kinds of things. So I think that will I think, you know, lead to an administration that recognizes that the future of the country is in kind of in the hands of the entrepreneurs, building things that will, will create not just the companies of the future, but also the industries of the future. And we need to invest in that and do it in an inclusive way, not just a few people in a, in a few places. And I also think he'll uh, you've done some work on this uh, as well. Uh, be focused uh, working with the president-elect on immigration reform, which we we desperately need. We're you know definitely losing you know what is now a global battle for talent, and it's a complicated issue, and it's in some ways a very emotional issue for a lot of people. But we do do need to you know, move forward and and you know, get you know, kind of a comprehensive approach to immigration reform, you know, passed and signed into law uh, sooner rather than later. And I think he'll be helpful there. One big thing uh, President like Biden will have to do is unite the country, and I'm wondering if there's anything we skipped over it. But you know, you, I've heard you speak about the merger uh, between AOL and Time Warner, and the fundamental challenge there being about alignment of people and and mission and culture. I wonder if there's anything from that experience that you think you you know you've known the president elect for three decades. Anything from that experience that you might recommend to him uh, as he seeks to um, unite the country a bit uh, in the coming years. I, I think he understands it, you know, better than I. So I'm not sure I have anything I recommend to him in terms of the, the merger. Some of the things that, that did go wrong was, you know, AOL was a, you know, an, an attacker, really kind of challenging the status quo. 
Uh, Time Warner was more of a defender, you know, a bunch of businesses, some of them that were almost a century old, uh, and the executives there, like many, you know, large Fortune 500 companies, they're, 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 they get promoted and become CEO because they're good at managing risk as opposed to maximizing opportunities. So the mindset with, a, with an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial company, and more of a, of a large kind of a I mean, Fortune 500 company is, 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 is quite different. And there was at the time, again, the merger was 20 years ago, there was a lot of people, uh, not all, but a lot of people on the Time Warner side that didn't really believe in the internet. You know, some did, obviously, including Jerry Levin, who was the CEO at the time, who, who pushed for the merger with, with, with AOL. But many didn't, and many just didn't want to deal with it. They just wanted to, you know, kind of keep managing the business the way, the way it was. It was pretty clear to some of us what was going to happen, and it has happened. Uh, but it wasn't clear to everybody, or even if it was clear, they just didn't want to deal with it. And interestingly, just this week, um, there's a whole kerfuffle uh, because Warner Brothers, which was part of obviously Time Warner, uh, announced that they were going to, starting next year, have uh, all their movies, not just premiered in theaters, but also launched simultaneously on streaming with, with HBO Max, which should have been done 20 years ago, uh, but they, there wasn't the stomach to, to do that. Uh, even today, when they announced that, the, you know, there's, you know, the theaters are freaking out. A lot of people in Hollywood are freaking out. And it just shows you it's hard to move one of these, you know, big companies, one of these big uh, aircraft carriers. So that was sort of the merger. I don't think that much of it translates, frankly, to the challenge that, you know, the president-elect has in terms of uniting the country. Obviously, you know, they're we're divided across a variety of economic and, you know, cultural uh, kind of lines. It's going to be challenging. But I do believe, I do know that he has a mindset in terms of building bridges. He genuinely does want to figure out a way to, you know, you know, reconnect us and what he calls, you know, the kind of the soul of America. Uh, so I think he's, he's the right guy to try to get things together. It's hard. Obviously, you know, we've seen, you know, kind of you know, hyper-partisanship, you know, kind of increased over the past, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, there clearly will be a lot of people that don't want him to be successful and, and will try to block any efforts he, he tries to make. And that's through cross administrations with Republican or Democrat, uh, which is which is unfortunate. But hopefully he can assemble the team, which he's already started to do with, as you mentioned, Ron Klain and many others, uh, and, and start setting the priorities, including getting us through the pandemic, but also unleashing the next wave of innovation in a more inclusive way and trying to get people, you know, kind of, you know, focused on what, you know, unites us, not just what divides us. You touched on this a bit on the higher ed side of things. Um, Ashay Modi has a um, question. What do you believe are the most critical problems to solve in our education system? Well, I'm no expert, but we have done, made some investments there. I, I, I split into sort of the K-12 side versus the college university side versus sort of a more lifelong learning retraining side because i think they're a little bit different on the early side uh, and some some schools doing this but most aren't i think we have to recognize that we need to teach our kids things that machines can't do and and you know some of that is creativity and communications and collaboration you know, you know skills it comes with some people think are maybe soft skills but i think are going to be critically important skills in terms of this what this wave we're moving into uh and you know, i think a lot of Experts tell me that you know kids come in in kindergarten pretty creative, but by the time they graduate, they're much less creative, and and that's unfortunate at a time where creativity is is is, is critical. So on the university side, some are doing this. A friend of mine, Michael Crow, runs an Arizona State University, for example. ASU done some amazing things to create more accessibility using technology, giving people more you know convenience. How do you have essentially you know better learning outcomes, but in ways that more people can afford. Uh, uh, not just jack intuition up every every year uh, in ways that are more convenient, including if they're trying to, you know, work work while also, you know, kind of uh, learning. And I think there are a whole host of things on the more lifelong learning side, recognizing that all of us need to be constantly learning new things, building new skills, because the jobs we had maybe 25 years ago or 50 years from now are going to be different than today and certainly different than 25 years from now or 50 years from now. So there's got to be more of an ongoing process to learning as opposed to more traditional view where you, you know, go so far, maybe you, you know, stop at high school or maybe you go to community college or maybe you go to college or maybe you go to graduate school and then you're kind of done and you're in the, you're working the rest of your life. Uh, you know, recognizing it's much more of a, of a ongoing effort, I think is critically important and, and creates a lot of opportunities of which many companies are focused on now. Great. 
I didn't know this until recently, but you're chair of the Smithsonian. Um, how is an institution like that adapting both in a, in a moment of COVID, but also just the use of technology media to reach new audiences and, and engage folks on, the, on that perspective? Well, the Smithsonian, for those who don't know, has 19 different museums, most in Washington, D.C. on the mall, air and space and natural history, American history, et cetera, et cetera. Also Cooper here in, uh, in New York City and a lot of research operations also all around the world and you know, Panama and Boston, other, other, other places. Fabulous organization. Next year, we'll be, we'll be celebrating our 175th birthday. So it's been around for a while, uh, but it's mostly been known for physical museums, which are obviously important and 30 million or so people visit our museums each year and they can be, you know, have a profound impact on their, their lives and seeing things that are curated, uh, and exhibits you know, can be can be hugely valuable, but not everybody has the opportunity to get on a plane and fly to Washington D.C. and spend a few days wandering around the Smithsonian Museum. So part of what we've been pushing for the last few years is more of a virtual Smithsonian. How do we take the Smithsonian to every classroom, to every home, and 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 also how do we use technology to enhance the experience when people are visiting, both before, during, and after they they visit? So that's been an effort underway for for several years. Uh, the, this pandemic uh, has changed things. We've actually had to close the museums twice. Uh, we closed them, I believe it was in March and then started reopening them in, in August. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we decided we had to close them again, given what's happening with the, with the spikes in, in, uh, in COVID, which of course is unfortunate, but we are using that time uh, to you know, double down, triple down on our, our digital strategies and, and try to move the idea of virtual Smithsonian Forward, try to create a more collaborative approach across the Smithsonian and also partnering with other different uh, organizations. So I'm hopeful that one of the silver linings coming out of uh, the pandemic, despite its, you know, the many terrible, terrible, tragic aspects of it, is the Smithsonian actually will be a stronger institution a few years from now because it was forced during this period to, to take a step back and use that time to kind of retool, pivot, if you will, and focus on, on being more, more digital. That's great. Um, there are a handful of questions in here on COVID. Uh, Julie Zhang and Lisa Dorsey asked similar questions around biggest learning lesson in the past six months um, or just in, in 2020 generally that you've learned through the pandemic. A few things. One is I, I did find it as other people did working remotely was a little easier than I would have expected than the team dynamics across the revolution as an investment company and invested across seed venture and growth in about 200 companies and uh, it's actually, it's, it's gone better than I, I would have thought. Not, not, there's some aspects, particularly in terms of brainstorming other things that you do lose something, but uh, overall it's gone you know, reasonably well. I do think we're moving into a, a phase, probably at least six months from now, maybe, maybe longer, depends obviously on how we manage the pandemic and do, deal with things like vaccines where, where we're gonna have hybrid workforces. I, I think the, in retrospect, it was relatively easy to run an organization where everybody's in the office and it was relatively easy to, right now, run an organization where everybody's remote. I think it's gonna be really hard if like it's 50-50 and some people are remote and some people are in the office and can create some really interesting cultural dynamics, team dynamics, trust dynamics. Are people remote, for example, gonna be to steal the Hamilton uh, play line, you know, feel like they're not in the room where it happens. It's gonna be some, some weird stuff that's gonna man, you know, have to happen. But overall, it's gone reasonably well. We've also seen, as others have, a real acceleration in, in the growth of some of our, our companies. Uh, DraftKings has, has had a, a big year. Big Commerce has had a you know, big year. Talkspace has had a big year. So some of the trends, whether it be you know, telehealth or e-commerce or, or other things, the acceleration of those trends has been uh, you know, kind of, uh, interesting to watch. And the last one, as I mentioned earlier, is, is what's happening in terms of the talent flows. And I don't know how many of folks who are on this right now typically are in New York, uh, but happen to be someplace else. And in, how many of you are thinking of staying where you are for a while longer, maybe some permanently, how you're rethinking your your life and your family and your career. You know, it's been for a lot of people kind of a shake the snow globe moment. And you know, it'll be interesting to see how things settle out, uh, you know, two, three, four years from now. But my guess is, even though most people I do expect to return, I don't think some of these predictions of the hollowing out of Manhattan or San Francisco. I think that's crazy. These are great cities, and 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 will you know, you know, they'll, they'll continue to be great, uh, great cities, and will continue to be a magnet for talent. But you know, some people will use this opportunity to take a step back and, and make some some different decisions. 
Great. And um, and Ben, maybe you can drop this in the chat, but uh, you had a, an op-ed in the Washington Post over in the, over the summer as well about uh, the headline was, there's no going back to the pre-pandemic economy. Congress should respond accordingly. I think this was at, around um, uh, one of the, the, the funding bills, but um, but I don't know if you want to reflect on that at all, or Ben can also, you know. Yeah, and I actually have another one coming out in the soon, uh, next couple of days, probably uh, a little bit of update on that. The, the main message there was obviously, you know, Congress appropriately move quickly to put the programs in place, PPP and others to try to stabilize small businesses that were struggling and, and, and many still struggling, many restaurants other things obviously have gone out of business. So it's still a real difficult situation. And hopefully, and there's some discussion now about some compromises, potentially even this week, at least a temporary compromise in terms of getting more, you know, kind of money in the hands of, of, of people and, 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 and businesses. And that's super important. My, my message then and my message again will be, let's don't lose sight of the fact, as I said earlier, that the real, you know, kind of job creation, creating side of this, this, uh, this country is, is new companies, startups. And if we just focus on existing businesses uh, and don't focus on new businesses, we know some of those existing businesses will not recover. And what do we need to do something to create some of the jobs that will offset the jobs we're going to lose. And that can only come from, from you know, startups. So we got to focus on, 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 on young companies, new companies, uh, startups, not just on existing companies, whether it be small businesses or big businesses. Great. Uh, some questions on food. Alyssa Vitrano had a question. How's the wine business doing in Virginia during COVID? And are you planting any new grape varieties? Yeah, my wife and I uh, bought a uh, vineyard and winery in, in, uh, in Madison, Virginia, sort of central Virginia, I don't know, six or seven, maybe eight years ago. Um, and it was mostly a, a kind of a passion project that the, the American wine industry, even though it's associated with California, particularly associated with Napa, actually started in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, you know, when he was ambassador in France, decided, you know, wine was kind of nice. And uh, he decided he was, when he came back to Virginia, to plant some, some vines and, and start growing some wine. He didn't get quite get it right. You know, the long backstory there, we don't have to get into. Uh, so kind of Virginia lost a couple centuries and but the last couple of decades has come roaring back. Now there's over 200 wineries and some of the wines are really getting, a few of our wines are getting like really good in like 95 kind of, kind of ratings. So we decided to invest in this in part to try to lift up the Virginia wine business, partner with other, other, other wineries. And it's been, uh, it's been fun. That's great. We often have wine during these events when they're in person. So next right. time. I guess um, I should have held out and waited for an in-person event. I, uh, one more food question, which is, I knew I knew you invested in Sweet Green. I didn't realize Kava was also a portfolio company. So probably four to five nights a week, I'm uh, supporting your. Uh, Thank your you. Thank you. Love that. You're welcome. Um, uh, favorite bowl at Sweet Green? Guacamole Greens. By the way, that's a great company that uh, they started by three you know, three you know, kids because they were Georgetown undergrads at the time and you know, here in DC. And we invested probably six or seven years ago. It was mostly based in. DC, they've obviously expanded in New York and Boston and you know, LA, San Francisco, just in the last few months have opened up in Denver and Austin and, and uh, some other cities. And they're an amazing uh, entrepreneurial success story. Uh, and part of that was the concept of, of fast food was gonna lose share to fast casual and healthier fast casual would win over unhealthy, you know, kind of, you know, kind of fast food. And that's been the case, but also a lot of use of technology. Now, most of their orders are on smartphones and, and uh, so forth. So it's, uh, it's been um, fun to watch that ride. That's great. Uh, we are running up on the hour. So I'm going to go through a couple quickly. Um, any books, newsletters you like that you sort of read, or any sort of recent books you read or newsletters that you read in the morning? I read a lot of things. It's, it's hard to pick anyone because I, I get like 30 or 40 different things. I create a separate email account just for newsletters so I can quickly scan through them and it doesn't, you know, I can focus on my, my things I have to pay attention to, uh, you know, first. I, I, I'm not, I like a lot of people, uh, you know, who are entrepreneurial, I'm sort of a sponge for information, ideas, and, 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 and just, you know, kind of over time, you know, kind of things, trends, uh, ideas emerge out of that. So I read a lot of different things. The book I'm reading right now is a new Scott Galloway book talking about some of the, some of the things we talked about, some of the, the trends that are coming out of uh, you know, the COVID situation that are, are worthy of, of people's attention. Also just started reading the Barack Obama's uh, autobiography, which, uh, um, you, know, you know, he's a great writer. So, and actually, and it's a small world department. I actually went to high school with him. We were, we were in high school together in Honolulu, Hawaii in the, in the mid seventies. You were a couple years ahead? I was 
three years ahead. Yeah. So I was a senior when he was a freshman. So I remember playing basketball with him. I don't think I ever had a class with him. Uh, how, but it's a reminder. You never know who might be, might be, you know, kind of nearby. You have to be nice to everybody. How did the basketball game go? I don't remember. It was long, so long seems, ago. But, he seems quite good. He was a better player than I am, but uh, I do remember that. Uh, you mentioned Scott Galloway. Scott talks a lot about uh, media, the future of media. There's a question here from Cervantes Lee. What do you see the future of internet media looking like in the next 10 years? Similar question or, or in the same space, at least from Russell Isaacson. Thoughts on Quibi uh, pulling the plug and just any sort of general sort of things you're interested in in, in, in media broadly? Well, Quibi was an interesting one. And I, I, I do know, um, you know, Jeff Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, and, and I, I have a lot of respect for them. And the idea that they had that somehow this, you know, this quick digestible, uh, mostly mobile on the run content would be interesting. You know, it seemed like an interesting hypothesis. Obviously, they raised a ton of money, came over a billion dollars, I think was the, was the you know, the number. Um, and when they did launch, you know, you know didn't partly because of the pandemic, it just the opportunity they envisioned just didn't seem to exist. Um, so yeah, I, I give them credit for acknowledging that and you know giving it a go and saying, come to think of it, you know our thesis was not accurate. And rather than keep at it or try to you know pivot using the money we still have, which is several hundred million dollars, let's just return the money to to the investors and you know figure out some other things to do. So I mean, anytime any entrepreneur that happened to be at a you know obviously a, a dramatic scale in terms of the capital raised and the and the, the brands they 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 brought to bear and the companies and partnerships they they formed, uh, but it was it was uh, you know good for them for giving it a shot. That's what this innovation is all about. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. You gotta you know kind of have to take shots on goal. Great. Um, uh, there's a question from Sage Ramaj. Uh, what are the burning question, issues or questions you have that you don't see enough companies and entrepreneurs focused on? Um, I'm not sure there's any that I would say that aren't being focused on because most of the sectors that I think are up for grabs and what I call this internet third wave are getting you know, focused on. I think my my concern it goes back to something we said before that sometimes the focus is too narrow on a, an entrepreneur who's in a certain place and frankly looks a certain way and the data i mentioned around venture capital in terms of cities but also in terms of, of people i think to me is that reminder so it's less about the ideas and more about trying to constantly open your aperture expand your network create you know connectivity between you know people to help link the people who have ideas with people who have uh, capital or who might join their team or might be a mentor or a customer or what have you, creating that network around some of the entrepreneurs that are sometimes left out or oftentimes left out, I think to me is, is important. And I think that will result in some you know, breakout companies that are super innovative because they're, they're looking at problems and seeing opportunities in a different you know, kind of context. So to me, that idea of leveling the playing field is, 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 you know, a lot of it comes back to that. Two last questions briefly. Um, any other um, founders, uh, investors that you admire? Tons of them, tons of them. No, and actually with our Rise Rest Seed Fund, I should have said this, but when we launched that, we actually uh, reached out to some of the most uh, successful uh, entrepreneurs and investors. So, you know, Jeff Bezos is an investor in our seed fund and, and, and Howard Schultz and Eric Schmidt and, you know, some investors like Mike Milken and Ray Dalio and uh, some venture capital like John Doerr and, uh, you know, Jim Breyer, uh, Meg Whitman, who, you know, we, we talked about it, and Tory Burch in, in, uh, in New York. We have some of the, Sarah Blakely in Atlanta, some of the most iconic entrepreneurs across a lot of different sectors who are joining us as, as co-investors in, in backing these entrepreneurs in these, in, these, in these rising cities. I respect all of them and, and uh, have, thankfully, the, the opportunity to work with uh, with them in, in a variety of different ways over a long, long, long period of time. Great, that's great. And last question, I'll get to Denise Thomas. She says, uh, what is the advice you find yourself giving to founders most often? I would say the, the, the most common thing I'd focus on would be this partnership. And I, I always remind people of this African proverb, if you wanna go quickly, you can go alone, but if you wanna go far, you must go together. So. You know, you're just trying to figure out, you know, who can, who can you align with, what companies, what people, what uh, organizations, how do you expand your, almost a network around your idea. Think of your idea you know, like an API and how do you create more connectivity with other 
other people other you know in different different kind of places that could maybe take your idea and your company and, and help accelerate I, I think to me that was certainly critical with us if we had tried it early days of AOL to do it on our own we would have for sure failed we only did it because we were able to knit together a tapestry of alliances. I think that's going to become increasingly important. So just spending a little more time on that. It's hard, you know, in terms of you know forging and and, and cementing and, and and sustaining partnerships, uh, but it's uh, it's critical. So of course a lot of the basics around you know building teams and is 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 also pretty basic and pretty important. But I would say if there's one thing, it's look for opportunities to expand your partnerships and instead of trying to go it alone, you know, figure out ways to go together. That's great. That's a great uh, note to end on. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I'm going to thank you all. Good yeah. chat with you. Yeah. Stay safe, Steve stay healthy. And Aaron, thank you so much for uh, taking us through. Steve, really appreciated your candor. Um, last thing before everyone jumps, um, two big events this week. Tomorrow, we've got an event with Shopkeep. Um, the founders talking about how they grew from one customer to a 440 million exit. And then on Thursday, um, some people asked about blockchain. We've got an event that's focused, it's a conference called Render, which is a conference series we have. It's focused on NFTs and DeFi, which is distributed finance, two big areas within blockchain. If you're interested in learning more about those, check that out, that's on Thursday at noon. So thanks again for joining us and uh, see you guys again here soon. Cheers. All right, thanks.